Dogen, who was uh, one of the much-loved teachers of the past, and so that to, to study the way is to study the self. To study oneself is to forget oneself. To forget oneself is to be awakened by all things. To be awakened by all things is to let body and mind of self and others fall away. Even the traces of awakening come to an end, and this traceless awakening continues endlessly. If you listen to enough Dharma teachings, if you read enough, if you practice this path for a time, there are two words that you are going to inevitably encounter. In Pali, one of those words is anatta, the other is shunyata. Now, anatta is usually translated as non-self, and shunyata is usually translated as emptiness, or emptiness of self. (coughs) Now, I find that many people have really quite an emotional reaction to these words, Some people tell me when they hear teachings on non-self or emptiness that they just kind of tune out, that they sort of stop listening. Sometimes people tell me the feeling, the reason they do that is that they feel this is such a sort of complex teaching, unfathomable, beyond their understanding, or perhaps feel that the teaching of non-self or emptiness really maybe has very little to do with them. You know, one person I remember saying to me, like, I'm really not that interested. I just want a little calm. (laughs) It's kind of a reasonable thing to say, you know. And even that, could feel hard enough to get. Sometimes people tell me they have a little aversion for these words and teachings of non-self and emptiness, that they're heard as being kind of nihilistic, you know, a sort of prescription for passivity or irresponsibility or a surrender of direction and relatedness. Other people tell me that they hear these words non-self and emptiness in a kind of accusatory kind of way, um, as, as a judgment when their felt experience feels to be so much locked within a world of selfing. One thing I think is very important to remember is that the Buddha never reserved the teachings on emptiness or the teachings on non-self for experienced students. This wasn't a teaching reserved for the sort of cream of his disciples or the spiritually elite. In fact, this was the second discourse that the Buddha gave. This was the subject of the second discourse that the Buddha gave. And inevitably, if you read the discourses time and time again, you see that new students, you know, new, new practitioners would turn up and, and right away, you know, the first time the Buddha would be launching into teachings of emptiness and non-self. Because the Buddha actually considered the teaching and the understanding of non-self and emptiness to really be at the heart of the liberated mind. And that there was no, actually, no better means to bring about the end of despair and the end of sorrow and the end of suffering than to understand non-self. This was quite straightforward in his mind, you know, that you didn't prepare for this, you know, and, you know, kind of improve yourself and, you know, get better at things and then somehow understand non-self. He's put this at the beginning of the path. 
And rather than presenting, rather than presenting the teaching of non-self and emptiness as something terribly complex, the Buddha really spoke about emptiness and non-self as simple realities, simple actualities, quite straightforward, simple actualities that are staring us in the face every moment of the day. Now, this teaching of non-self, it's also good to acknowledge that this is a teaching that spans all Buddhist traditions, but it's certainly not restricted to Buddhist traditions. That in many spiritual traditions, people recount um, encounters, almost collisions with non-self and with emptiness. I'd like to read you something from... Uh, Oliver Sacks, some of you may be familiar with his work. He's a psychologist. And he, he wrote this in a time when he was convalescing from a serious leg injury. So, you know, he had quite a bit of time on his hands. He said, after breakfast, I wandered out. It was a particularly glorious September morning settled myself on a stone seat with a large view in all directions and filled and lit my pipe. This was a new or at least almost forgotten experience. I had never had the leisure to light a pipe before, or not, it seemed to me, for 14 years at least. Now suddenly I had an immense sense of leisure, an unhurriedness, a freedom I had almost forgotten, but which now it had returned, seemed the most precious thing in life. There was an intense sense of stillness, peacefulness, joy, a pure delight in the now, freed from drive or desire. I was intensely conscious of each leaf autumn-tinted on the ground, intensely conscious of the Eden around me. The world was motionless, frozen, everything concentrated, and an intensity of sheer being. Now on this morning, as though on the first morning of creation, I felt like Adam beholding a new world with wonder. I had not known or had forgotten that there could be such beauty, such completeness in every moment. I had no sense at all of moments, of the serial, only of the perfection and beauty of the timeless now. Dogen, Dogen again put it a different way. He says, emptiness includes the sun, moon, stars and planets, the great earth, mountains and rivers, all trees and grasses, bad people and good people, bad things and good things, heaven and hell. They are all in the midst of emptiness. Now, the, the Buddha presented anatta and shunyata, non-self and emptiness, both as teachings and, most importantly to understand, presented them as practices and ultimately as a way of seeing, ultimately as an embodiment of the liberated heart. As teachings, they were presented, the Buddha presented this very simply, saying that there is no thing that can be found inwardly or outwardly anywhere in the world that has an an independent self-existence. As a practice, he taught, saying, nothing that arises in body or mind should be regarded as mine, as belonging to me, or as who I am. Nothing that arises in the world should be regarded as mine, as belonging to me. Now it seems to me that the practice of non-self, 
naturally follows on from our own investigation of the teaching, which is what is really significant, because it's so important of any of the Buddhist teachings that one doesn't take it as a sort of, you know, a theology or as a philosophy or as an abstract, but to actually really look within yourself and to really say, is this true for me? Is this actually true in my own experience? Can I understand this, see this within myself? Because only then does it have any meaning, rather than as just a conceptual teaching. Now, when in instructing in the practice of non-self, when the Buddha was asked the question, you know, what is the liberation of mind through emptiness? His answer was, a monk or a nun, a man or a woman, has gone, goes to the forest or to the roots of a tree or to an empty hut and reflects, looking upon all things, that this is empty of self or what belongs to self, that this is the liberation of heart through emptiness. And the Buddha went on to describe this understanding as the, as the abode or the home of a great or noble person. Now, this practice of holding all things, seeing all things as having no independent self-existence, relating to all things as not me, not mine, not belonging to me. This practice was for the Buddha and is actually encouraged to be for us something very immediate, something very direct, and it does have a direction. And the direction of this practice is certainly not the erasure of self. It's not about the annihilation of self. But this teaching and practice is about the dispelling of misery and confusion, the suffering and the torment that is actually born of clinging to things as me, as mine, as belonging to me. It is so important to remember because this teaching is actually something that was quite unique to the Buddha in his time, in his cultural ethos. Um, but it is so important to remember the centrality of this teaching in the Buddha's path. Because, you know, we, we see in our practice, you know, in our experience of retreats, you know, that, you know, great meditative experiences may or may not come our way. Um, we may or may not get amazingly concentrated. You know, in so many ways, that is also incredibly secondary. Because what is really primary in the teaching, and I think primary in our own longings as human beings, is to bring about the end of suffering and torment, to understand what it means to be free within ourselves and understanding what causes suffering and torment, and understanding what, it, what we really understand about who we are, about what self is. Again, Dogen going on to speak about emptiness, he says, you must surely know emptiness as a perfect grass, this emptiness is bound to bloom like hundreds of grasses blooming. Seeing a dazzling variety of the flowers of emptiness, we surmise an infinity of the fruits of emptiness. We observe the bloom and the fall of the flowers and emptiness and learn the spring and the autumn of them. Now, I feel that we probably are able to acknowledge that every single quality of heart that we long for, that we value, that we see as being noble, our capacity to reach out with love and compassion and empathy and generosity, our ex the moments when we experience a sense of stillness, connectedness, receptivity, compassion. Have you noticed that in all of those moments, whenever you touch those qualities that you value, 
that they tend to be the moments when the voice of selfing is most quiet. If you notice when you're able to to touch some level of of peace or a capacity to be fully present, all those moments when we find ourselves most wholehearted in our lives, those are actually the moments when we're really not that busy with protecting and asserting and imposing and defending ourselves. You notice that those are the moments when our sense of self seems to be the most calm. It's almost like those moments are arising, are arising from emptiness. Almost as if they're the fruits of non-self. I I imagine you've probably also noticed the moments when we seem to be suffering the most, when we feel most disconnected, most afraid, most estranged, the moments when we feel most gripped by ill will or aversion or craving. The most difficult times in our lives are generally the moments when our sense of self looms the largest, has the loudest voice you know, the longest stories, (laughs) but very much the loudest sense of present. But have you also noticed that when that, the loudness, or the the kind of magnitude of ours, when that magnitude of self seems to be present, that's also the moment when the sense of you seems to be the strongest also, the sense of other, the sense of separation between I and other. We could almost, if we really see this in our experience, we can almost begin to say that just as freedom is the bloom of understanding emptiness, that suffering is almost the bloom of confusion, is almost the flower of confusion. If we can see for ourselves, in our experience, that the most spacious, the most peaceful, the most connected moments in our lives are the moments when we are least self-preoccupied, least self-obsessed, that they're actually the happiest moments in our lives, then it's a very good question to ask ourselves, what is it that leads to the denial of that spaciousness? What is it that at moments seems to almost lock us into this world of self-preoccupation or self-absorption, places actually where we very rarely really want to be. Now, first of all, I just want to take a little moment just to look at why, why we would struggle so much with the teaching on, of non-self. Because for sure, if there's any level of resistance or struggle with or denial of the teaching of oneself, there's, there's surely not going to be the practice of non-self. Now, I, I think that the, the primary reason we struggle with the concept, never mind the actuality of non-self, is because it's a teaching that I think feels to be the polar opposite of our felt experience. I mean... As embarrassing as it is to admit to this, we do pretty much see ourselves as being the center of the universe. And it, it, you know, that's kind of how it is. And in the Buddhist tradition, this is considered to be a sort of optical illusion. It's a kind of optical illusion. I mean, would we all agree that the Earth orbits around the sun? The sun doesn't orbit around the earth, does it? But doesn't it look like it does? Because, you know, you look at it the day, you know, and you see the sun come up over there, and it goes down over there, and it looks like it's going around us. And that's the sort of same optical illusion of self. As if the world, the universe, is somehow orbiting around this centrality of me. Now, when you wake up in the morning, you know, when you wake up in the morning, doesn't it just feel as if yourself is just waiting for you? 
It's, it's kind of like you have just maybe that one moment, you know, of stillness. And then, you know, your mind kicks into gear, you know, your body kicks into gear. It's kind of like your sense of self. It's just like the shoes beside your bed, you know, just waiting for you to step right into, you know, and, and you know, move into my plans and my fears and my projects and my ideas and my fantasies. It's like it's all there. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? It's just like it's just waiting for us. And it's kind of how we know ourselves, isn't it? By all those projects and fantasies and plans and ideas and thoughts. It's like the story of Nasruddin, you know, that the kind of Sufi fool, you know, who, who goes into the bank to the cash a check, you know, and the, and the cashier says, have you got any identification with you? You know, and he says, have you got a mirror? And, and, and he gives him a mirror, he says, that's me, all right, you know. <laughs> you know, we kind of have that sense, that it's all sort of intact. It's all very much me. Now, the difficulty with this, we might say, as the center of the universe, we do take, tend to take it all pretty personally. Hmm? Things are either happening to me, or I am making them happen. <coughs> things belong to me. And we have the very long and detailed story of who I am, who I used to be, who I am now, and on the base of that, base of that, of course, the thoughts about who I will be in the future. This sense of self is a kind of like an enduring companion, sometimes experienced as almost like our worst enemy. You know? My anxieties, my judgments, my fears, my sense of isolation, <coughs> my unworthiness, my inadequacy, these are all the landscape of my self. And of course we can, in that ideology of this being me and who I am, spend the entirety of our lives protecting or trying to improve or trying to assert or trying to conceal or trying to better our sense of self. In fact, it is a pretty full-time job. Now, we could react to this sense of self-absorption, very often experienced, with a whole other world of shame and judgment and blame, but quite frankly, that is just heaping selfing upon selfing. Another offspring of self-absorption is self-judgment. You know, self-blame is comparison. Or we could, as the Buddhist suggests, investigate, be a little bit curious about this whole idea of who I am, the whole idea of self. Is it an idea or is it a reality? Is it a noun or is it a process? Is there truly an independent self-existence that you can find in yourself. Is this who you are? I mean, when 2,600 years ago, when people came to the Buddha arguing the case for self, the Buddha never, never responded to those arguments with some assertion saying there is no self. Nor did he respond with the assertion that there is a self. Instead, he would begin to encourage this kind of investigation. And actually, in the time of the Buddha, he would often encourage uh, almost beginning with a sort of external investigation, that this was an easier way to begin to understand non-self, or to begin to understand that nothing has an independent self-existence. So the classic classic investigation you find in the discourses is, is the example of the cart, that he would encourage people to sort of dismantle a cart, you know, to take it apart, you know, and he would say, is the wheel the cart? And they'd say, no, no, the wheel's not the cart. You know, is the shaft the cart? No, no, the shaft's not the cart. You know, is the planking the cart? And they'd say, of course, the planking is not the cart. Now, we don't have any particular handy carts in here, but you could take anything in this room, take a chair, you know, just take a chair. 
Now, it is clear the chair has an existence. You know, Chris is not sitting on an illusion. <laughs> you know, otherwise he would be sprawled on the floor. But we could take the chair very personally, couldn't we? Huh? You know, they've got a better chair than me. I've got a better chair than them, aren't I lucky? You know, see how personally you take your chair when you come into the room and someone is sitting on your chair. You know, and then see the arising of I, mine, belonging to me. Now, the chair, of course, does have a conventional reality. It is a chair. Does it have an independent self-existence? If we look a little bit beneath the concept and the appearance of the chair, we see this is not so. That the chair is actually an ongoing story. The chair is actually an ongoing story. I mean, if you look really closely at the chair, you know, you see the wood of the trees that are in the chair, you know, the ground that, that allowed that wood to grow. You see the, the people who built the chair. Even the, uh, somebody once had an idea of a chair, had a thought, a chair would be something useful. You know, at what point did we have chairs? You know? But you see the ongoing story that there's a whole stream of conditions that had to come together in a particular matrix, a particular mandala, for the chair to be as we know it. The story of the chair is not over. At some point, that chair will fall apart, you know, it will, it will decompose, you know, it will turn into compost, it will become a condition for something else to arise. So when we speak about the emptiness of a chair, or the non-self of a chair, what we are really speaking about is what, we, what is revealed when we probe beneath the concept and the surface uh, and the appearance of anything. This is not a denial of the chair. It's not to say there is no chair. It is better to say that is a non-chair. <laughs> that is a non-chair. When we can probe beneath the concept and the appearance and the surface of things, I think there's a possibility of really opening to the mystery and the depth and the interconnectedness, interrelatedness of this fluid and changing life where nothing at all can be pinned down or can be fixed in place by name or by concept. Emptiness and the understanding of it teaches us to let go of all the fixed ideas we hold about ourselves about others, about the world. In, in so many ways, the moment that we endeavor or do try to fix something in place, we cease to see it. We cease to see its unfolding life. And in reality, nothing in this world is fixed or set in place or static apart from our view of it apart from our view of it. Think about that, even, you know, about ourselves, that no, nothing in ourselves is fixed in place, <laughs> apart from our view of ourselves. That another person is only fixed in place by our view of them. When we take away the view we have the unfolding process of life's ever-changing mystery. This is so interesting because I think we get trapped in this all the time. I mean, if you just think of a simple example, you know, if you came into the meditation room one day and somebody was sitting in your chair or, you know, on your cushion, you know, it's not likely to be that neutral an experience. You know, it's very likely you would feel this kind of surge, you know, <laughs> surge of selfing, you know. But not only that, with the surge of selfing, you would feel the surge of othering, wouldn't you? And then that person, think about it. I mean, you, you know, you might sort of correct their behavior on an immediate level. But every time, think about it, every time you would see them afterwards, you know, would you see that person? 
Or would you see the person who sat on my cushion? <laughs> they would be fixed in place by that view. Isn't it? The person who sat on my cushion. The person who did this. It is like a view has been formed, and that view almost kind of like it's damming a river. It's damming a river of possibility. It's damming a river of seeing things as changing possibilities. When we are able to sometimes just soften, let go of those views, what really happens is that we take our seat, not in views, but in this fluid, mysterious, changing life. But even taking that, even that seat is also fluid. It's not a center. It's not a center. But what we really see in the letting go of you is the capacity to open rather than to close, to see anew rather than to see through, see the world and ourselves through the filters of the past, of what has gone by. That is a world of possibility. Nagarjuna was one of the great poets of emptiness. And he wrote... Buddhists say that emptiness is relinquishing opinions and that the knowers of emptiness are incurable. Now, what is also very important in understanding non-self or the reality or the proposition that nothing has an independence of existence, uh, you know, a little bit later in the game, I must say that pretty much the entire scientific world has caught up with this understanding. You know, this is not just sort of a Buddhist territory anymore. You know, this is a territory of science, it's a territory of neuroscience, it's a territory of anyone who actually looks beneath the world of appearances. Now, we can, of course, totally intellectually agree with this. <laughs> and yet we can be so strangely reluctant to apply this same investigation that we brought to the chair. We can be so strangely reluctant to apply that same investigation to ourselves, to me, to the sense of I, to the sense of all that belongs to me. As much as we can sense the freedom of living without that imprisonment and contractedness of selfing. At the same time, it's a deeply unsettling thought when applied to ourselves. It can seem almost like, a, like an assault upon our sense of identity, which, as difficult as it can often be, is also what we're kind of used to. It feels kind of safe. It feels somewhat secure. Um, Clearly, you know, and, and it's so important here to keep not, don't tip into the, over the edge of nihilism. Don't tip over the edge of no, no self. The Buddha never taught no self. Before awakening, there is a sense of self, and believe it or not, after awakening, you're still going to get out in the morning and know how to live your life. You know, there will be a sense of self. Made up of body, feelings, experiences, perceptions, emotions, intentions, mind, and of course, our name. The standard bearer of me. I mean, can you imagine if you were sitting there in the middle of a city, you know, very quiet, eyes closed, and one of us suddenly <coughs> shouted out from the front of the room, Harry! <laughs> imagine if you were Harry. In a, you would feel, wouldn't you, immediately? It's like it just rose. You could be sitting there without any real sense of solidification of me. But the moment you heard the word hurry, you know, you'd be on alert, you know. Have you ever had the experience when somebody forgets your name? And they call you Sam when your name is Fred? You know how insulted that can feel? Insulting that can feel? Oh, they don't know who I am. You know, it's the invisible, you know. It's all very important to me. To me. Now, within ourselves, I think we sometimes hear these competing voices that inwardly we feel the voice that really yearns for, really longs for the release of the pain of self-absorption and all of its children of anxiety and judgment and comparing. And yet we can often also hear 
you know, we often also hear that this this voice of belief in self and how much we're we're kind of looking for me to be seen, you know. And you know, when my children were very small, you know, I remember when they were about like two or three years old, like like one of their favorite, often repeated phrases would be, "Look at me, look at me, look at me," you know, no matter what they were doing, it could be blowing their nose, you know, be look at me, look at me, you know. And you could really see, you know, we like we don't quite do so wild as we grow up, you know. But we spend a lot of our time in our life. Don't we? Look at me, you know. Look at me. I'm still here, you know. I'm here. I'm still here. You know? It's a <laughs> so what do we do with this? We don't turn away. We don't pretend that's not so. We don't condemn it. We do simply in practice learn to calm our hearts, to look a little bit more deeply, to use the same analytical skills that we brought to the chair and we bring them to ourselves. In the Buddha really encouraged us to, to look at the anatomy of me, to look at the anatomy of self. And he would say, well, first of all, why not investigate the body? Now, if the body was me, myself, if the body had an independent self-existence, if my body was not entwined with countless other conditions, then basically it would be logical to assume that I could have the body I want. That I would have the, and the body would do what I want it to do. It wouldn't have pain, it would never get ill, it would never age, it would look the way I want it to look. I could choose the body we want to have. Now, we all know this is simply not an option. That our bodies, like all things born, are subject to conditions. Once, we were all just a twinkle in our parents' eye. The body is not under our dominion. It does not change the way that we want it to change. It changes in ways we don't want it to change. This could be a place of tremendous suffering, of torment. It could be also a place where we understand I am not the body, the body is not myself. That this is not who I am. This is also true about feelings, emotions. You've noticed throughout this retreat that you cannot you do not have a menu of feelings that you cannot choose only to have pleasant feelings and never experience unpleasant feelings even though we might heroically try. We can't choose to inhabit a landscape of only bliss or elation or the lovely. How about consciousness? As I mentioned the other day, did you invite the thoughts, the mental states you've experienced today? Did you decide to have a day of uninterrupted happiness and have that work out for you? You know, did you decide to have a day of unrelenting obsession? Probably not. You probably notice how everything in yourself is changing, that nothing is fixed or static. Isn't it amazing? And yet we have some amne- so much amnesia about that. You know, that we can get so contracted into a thought pattern, a memory, an obsession, and we're sure it will last forever. And then by tea time, we're scratching our heads, wondering, what was I thinking about? <laughs> it's just gone. It's just gone. No independent self-existence. If myself had an independent self-existence, if I had an independent self-existence, basically I would conclude that I am doing a really crummy job. (laughs) That I'm really bad at this. Because I'm just not getting where I want, what I want. So at what point, at what point in our experience, have you looked at this, at what point in your changing fluid experience, moment to moment, at what point does the idea of me and mine and this belong to me arise? And why does it arise? At what point do we make this fluid unfolding process into something that is static? Different factors at play. 
One of the factors at play in, in the Buddhist tradition is called ignorance. The other is called clinging. Now, intellectually, we can accept we're not the pilot in the cockpit. We're not controlling, we're not deciding on everything that happens in our mind-body experience. But emotionally, we don't actually want to know this. This is part of what the Buddha calls ignorance. One part is not knowing, the other part is not wanting to know. I don't want to know this. So I don't give up hope. I don't give up trying, I don't give up valiantly trying to argue and struggle with what is. I don't give up resistance and craving, I don't give up greed and aversion, wanting and not wanting. What I don't give up is all the ways I torment, I torment myself. As we struggle to deny emptiness. Now the Buddha described there is another option. Let's look at the teaching of non-self, not as an intellectual uh, concept, but as a practice. First of all, let's, would it be like to turn the word self from a noun into a verb? Turn it into a verb. Don't think of I. Think of selfing. Don't think of self. Think of selfing. A process that arises and passes, almost a reflexive process that arises in the, fa- in the face of other processes. How the process of selfing arises in, in the face or even the intimation of pain or injury or loss or the unknown. But how the process of selfing also arises in the face of the lovely. You get, it's very important to get a felt sense of selfing, to get a very felt sense of it. So no, I don't think that's difficult, you know. Go to lunch, you know. Get a felt sense of selfing, you know. I want this, I'm leaning forward, I do that again, you know. You, you know, you get a felt sense of the selfing. Look in the, spend some time looking in the mirror, at what point does that felt sense of, oh, that's me, you know, actually really arise? Is it there when you first look in the mirror? Or does it start to build up with the story? Get the felt sense of self in relationship to a pain that the body's experiencing. At what t- point does it turn from, oh, an unpleasant experience in the body to, I really hurt? Get a felt sense of the self in a relationship, you know, to the stream of thoughts that moves through your mind in a day. At what point, you know, is there that kind of interruption and that fixing and, you know, I'm a terrible yogi, you know, or I really need this or I'm really like that. Try and get a felt sense of it. This sense of, of contractedness. Sense of contractedness. If you get a felt sense of the contractedness of selfing, it's it's pretty easy to recognize a pretty uncomfortable experience, contractedness. You know, that sort of shrinking of your world around something. It's a pretty unpleasant feeling. Now, sometimes, sometimes we know that. And, you know, in wiser moments, when we see selfing and clinging happening simultaneously, you know, there's a wise moment when we sort of say to ourselves, you know, it would be really a good idea to let go here. But even that suggestion, I would say, carries its own delusion. Because, again, it positions the centrality of self, that I am going to let go. You ever question that? When you're shouting at yourself to let go, who is letting go? You know? I mean, I am really quite 100% convinced that I have never let go of a single thing in my entire life. To me, it's, it's like, just, just makes no sense. You know? It's like, I decided to cling. 
you know, and I'm deciding to let go. It's again positioning the centrality of selfing. What I am pretty sure of in my own experience and what happens in practices is that in practice we cultivate the conditions of wisdom, of spaciousness, of calmness, of clarity and insight that allows letting go to happen. But this is not an agency. This is not my agency to let go. I can, I, there is a cultivation of conditions that allows letting go to happen. Reframing the language is very important here because I think if we reframe the languaging, we, we're reframing the whole framework. So rather than thinking of the centrality of self, we're actually thinking in terms of the process, process of selfing and clinging being interchangeable, part of the same fabric, process that arises and passes together. Now, I would also really encourage you, just as much as it's important to get a felt sense of selfing, it's also really good to acknowledge there's a lot of moments in the day of non-selfing. There's a lot of moments in the day of non-selfing. They just don't shout at us as loudly as the moments of selfing. You know, there may be moments in the day when you just, there's just stepping outside and there's just seeing. You know, there's, there's just walking and there's just walking. You know, you're just sitting and there's just sitting. There may be moments in the day when there is just eating and the whole sense of centrality is really not very present. You know, there's not necessarily a wanting of anything, a planning, a version. There's just being present. Have you ever found yourself sitting or walking and just forgotten that it's you sitting or walking? Yeah, it happens. Have you ever found yourself sitting, being mindful of breathing, and the breathing is just breathing itself? And you're not breathing. You're not the breather anymore. When all the, the goals, the resistances, they just, they just fall away. And, and in those moments, you can really sense how alive the heart is, you know. It's a sense of peace, but this could also be an incredibly ordinary moment, you know. I mean, are, is it always you brushing your teeth, or sometimes is it just brushing, just washing? Just seeing, just listening. It's really good to notice these moments. Hmm? Other moments too, more important moments. When you find yourself very unhesitatingly reaching out to another in pain. Hmm? That's that kind of very spontaneous, unhesitating generosity or empathy or compassion. When you find yourself unhesitatingly listening to another these very much more profound moments, actually, when that centrality of self is really not very present at all. And then you experience, actually, the loveliness and the freedom of not occupying that position. Those moments, there is a softening of the idea of I and you. And there's a taste of emptiness. There's a little bit of an intimation of freedom. Not gripped by views, not gripped by aversions. We all have plenty of experience, I think, in selfing. But the practice on non-selfing is maybe something we can begin really to cultivate. And that the clues lie within our own experience. Those moments when the voice of selfing is so, so muted. Leonard Cohen once wrote in one of his songs, he said, ring the bells that can still ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. And that's how the light gets in. There are many cracks in selfing. Many cracks in selfing. Now, emptiness is not a state, but a way. It's a path. Opening and closing, opening and closing. We sense this in our bodies, our minds, our hearts. Countless times in a single day in the face of sights, sounds, people, events, body sensations, thoughts, 
thoughts. And we can really see how the closing, the contracting, is kind of the mechanism of selfing and clinging, born of seeing substantiality and an independent self-existence in all things. Opening, we might say, is the response of emptiness to emptiness. Now, does that opening really need to be left to chance? I think not. We do begin to see that contracting and closing as a process that sets us apart, that isolates and estranges us into the very lonely world of self. And perhaps we do begin to taste how that sense of opening, of non-selfing, is the way to the end of disconnection and suffering. And perhaps we can learn to probe beneath our concepts. Perhaps we can learn to investigate, to probe beneath the world of appearances, the ways in which our views, all the places our views have fixed anything at all in place. The practice of emptiness is not trying to annihilate anything, not even myself. Rumi, he once wrote, he said, being is not what it seems nor is non-being. The whole world's existence is not in the world. The whole world's existence is not in the world. Before enlightenment, of course, there's a sense of self. After enlightenment, still a sense of self. What is really different is the view. You no longer see substantiality or independence of existence in anything and still get up in the morning and breathe and move through the day, but without wrong view, without wrong view. And then life is a response, and life is responsiveness. You know, the poets of emptiness, you know, Nagarjuna, Shantideva, they really taught emptiness not as a state, but as a way of being, but also as a doorway to compassion, but also as an understanding with profound ethical implications. Because no longer locked into the view of selfing, there is no room for ill will and fear and craving. There is no longer that that closed world of I and you and us and them. Instead, there is empathy and there is compassion. take just a moment quietly together thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and dharma seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate